Okay, first question. I have a friend who was a lay pastor. She went uh, to a retreat and said she had demons, devils cast out of her. Now she is no longer longer has issues with food. She has lost a lot of weight and has kept it off. My question is, when we are baptized, doesn't that mean we have chosen Christ and the Holy Spirit comes to live in us? Can we have both the Holy Spirit and demons living in us at the same time? So I think the question is helpful because there's a difference between ceremonial baptism an actual baptism of the Holy Spirit. They're not the same thing. And you can go through a ceremonial baptism without actually having your heart and mind baptized by the Holy Spirit. And so um, what you describe here would suggest that, in fact, it was at this uh, uh, casting out experience where the Holy Spirit really uh, cleansed her heart and mind, and the previous water baptism was ceremony, but not necessarily operational, functional in the heart and mind. Uh, if we are not to become robots and ask God to take the wheel, uh, then what is the difference from asking God for help for power to overcome temptation? Uh, please explain the difference from our making image of God choices and how God's power works in us. So I explained that in class, and that is the Holy Spirit reveals truth in ways we cannot comprehend it, and then we're left free to choose yes or chose no. When we choose yes to the truth and act on the truth, then we receive the power to succeed. But we don't get the power until we actually make the choice. God never chooses for us or else we become robots. Uh, having extensively read Pastor Venden's books, I believe his illustration about Jesus taking the wheel has to do with our inability to see the road ahead and asking for, for wisdom in making correct choices. How am I being the toddler that I am and not being able to see the nanosecond beyond my own nose to make the wise decisions? It is in this sense that I, I and I am sure many others, ask Jesus to take the wheel. So I appreciate this so much because um, if I suggested anything uh, negative about Pastor Venden, then I... I, uh, I sincerely apologize for that because I was in no way impugning Pastor Venden nor um, you know his relation with God or, or so forth. I think this is a great point to suggest, though, that Pastor Venden may use an object lesson like uh, the Lord take the wheel that is meant simply, Lord, Lord you tell me uh, which which if you was doing the true object lesson, you would still be on the wheel, but now you're listening to your co-pilot who's telling you when to turn because he can see the road that you can't. But but uh, if that's what he truly meant, then that's exactly right. We can't see the future. We can't see the bends in the road and so forth. And so we want God to direct us. But at the end of the day, it's our choice to make, not the Lord's choice in the governance of our lives. The last fruit of the Spirit is self-control, not Holy Spirit control. And so uh, I appreciate that very much uh, that you've sent that in to clarify that. Uh, unfortunately, the illustration, regardless of his, inten- his intentions, let's assume he intended exactly like you said, which I would uh, support, that's not how most people have that I personally have interacted with who know this metaphor have understood it. They've understood it as wanting to relinquish the responsibility for the choice to God. God, I'll just ride in the passenger seat. You decide and you take charge. And, and they become passive in their life, just praying that the Lord's will be done. And that is not uh, the point. So I was really taking on the issue of how some people understood it. I, I really don't know his original intention because I don't know him. Uh, Tim, I, like you, teach Sabbath school every week as well as preach sometimes. However, I know this is not uncommon. With a family and teens, I find myself on some Sabbath mornings dealing with conflicts in my home. No. (laughs) Someone doesn't want to go. Family issues, church issues. Uh, At times, I feel very upset, discouraged, unworthy, and uh, definitely do not feel like uh, being up front. Can you give me and any of my fellow ministers some advice on how to handle such things? 
So, uh, yes, I would suggest, number one, that um, feelings are feelings. They're not facts, and they're not reality. You may feel that way because it's frustrating. Life can have frustrating circumstances. It can be a frustrating situation. Okay? Remember your responsibility. What are you responsible for? Are you responsible for what others think and what others feel and what others want to do? Or are you responsible for what you do in governance of yourself? Okay? And so sometimes we make ourselves vulnerable to these types of frustrations when we, when we want other person's compliance with our agenda for the day, and they won't comply, that can frustrate us. And so thinking through um, your priorities and, and your decisions, and what is the ultimate priority here? And it depends on the circumstance and the reasons why. But at the end of the day, give, um, I felt, how do I, yeah, focus on doing your duty to the best of your ability. To, I, I sometimes have, uh, I don't know if you want to call those real-time prayers or emergency prayers, but I'll be conversing with God in real time. Lord, I don't want to be this upset. Give me a better attitude. Help me love this person. But what's the wise thing to do? Okay, so, and sometimes I forget that and I always don't do the wise thing. Uh, so, but, but there's, but I make the distinction. You're allowed to have frustrating emotions, even angry emotions. You're allowed to have those emotions. What you do with them that matters. And so if you're, if you're suggesting, how do I get myself to feel better by the time I get there? You may not. You may not. But, but, but then you reflect on it, you work it out, and you try to identify, okay, what was it about that? What can I learn from the experience? So next time you don't just simply repeat it over and over again. My teenager no longer wants to go to church and doesn't seem, sounds similar to the other one, doesn't it? And no longer, but it's not, it's a different person. Uh, no longer wants to go to church and doesn't seem to want a relationship with God at this point. We are a pastor's family that has preached God's beautiful character and the principles that you speak about each week. At what point do I let my child have the freedom to choose about attending church? So I, I wouldn't go to that question yet. I would actually take some time with your child and start having some conversations and allow them to explain to you what is the reason they don't want to go to church. Is, and, and is the reason they don't want to go to church, uh, the, you said, um, don't want to go to church and doesn't seem to want a relationship with God. Uh, tell me about the God that you don't want a relationship with. Why don't you want a relationship with God? Where's that coming from? The, and, and, and you need to, I, I, to me, the question about them going to church or not going to church is really way down the road at this point. There's, there's, a, there's a signal that something's wrong in their heart and mind, and, and, and you need to trace that back. Is it because they were uh, laughed at in their, in their youth group at, at church or made fun of? Are they getting bullied or even picked on? Did they go through some trauma at school uh, where they were picked on? Or maybe an adolescent girl was sexually assaulted and she hasn't told their parents about it. Now she feels dirty and doesn't want to go or God didn't protect her. I mean, there, there, are, there are variables here we just don't know. This needs to be investigated. Uh, and then, and then, uh, are there other issues? Is she uh, involved in uh, in some type of gaming or online community or being influenced with too much digital media that's corrupting? Because by beholding, we become changed. Is she filling her mind with stuff that is is inflaming certain value sets that are contradictory to what she's finding at church? And then, then, then she needs to have that stuff cut off. Whether she goes to church or not, that stuff's harming. It needs to be cut off. So there's a whole lot that's just not here. So I think that question at this point is 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 um, not ready to be answered. We have to find more data. It says, John, uh, re- reading John twelve four, uh, does this prove that Judas Iscariot really w- uh, is really the son of Simon the ex-leper? I don't see the fact brought up in any of the other four Gospels. And uh, it depends on which version you read of this. And uh, in the King James, it says, uh, this is at... Um, 
Mary Magdala anointing the feet of Simon the leper, that Jesus healed Simon the leper, and they're at the, the she's anointing the feet, and, and it says, then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, um, which would betray him at, at this feast with Simon. So they're saying, does that prove it's, it's the, the, the same Simon's son? Others, though, um, don't actually say Simon's son. Other translations, NIV um, just says, but one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later betray him, objected. It doesn't have Simon's son in there. So I, that, that, would, uh, that tells you that there are different um, Greek texts uh, and some have it uh, of, of John, and some uh, some some of the Greek texts of John have Simon's son. Some don't. So uh, I would suggest no. This does not prove it. It's suggested as a possibility. So, but I, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't make too much of there. Simon was a common name. So, just as at that time Judas was a common name. So. I love coming home after church and watching your Sabbath school. And quite, oh, this is just asking about if the Sabbath school lesson that we just recorded could be up before tomorrow. And the uh, webmaster said no because Odyssey, which is our streaming service, doesn't allow uh, allow for that to maintain itself there. So the answer to the question was no. Um, it'll be up tomorrow. Uh, in the account of Dinah's, Dinah, Jacob's daughter, I always felt horrible that Jacob did not re, uh, react appropriately to Dinah's rape because... Uh, but could it be that the lawlessness defilement committed was act of premarital sex? I wonder because in Genesis 24:67 the same word took Isaac took Rebekah, and it also stated that Shechem took Dinah. So I'm wondering if this was basically mutual consensual premarital sex, but that was an offense in their culture because they weren't married yet, and that's what got them all offended. I think that, that from what you've described here, comparing it to the other text, that sounds like a reasonable possibility. Certainly, Dinah did not act the traumatized part. Uh, it says that she stayed with him freely. So it sounds like maybe she, there was a, a teenage infatuation going on there. Um, so I think that's not an unreasonable conclusion. Uh, recently, you explained that Jesus gave up his omnipresence when he took on humanity forever. How should we understand, then, his presence uh, seen simultaneously around the world upon his return at the second coming? So I would ask you to tell me what text you're using to say he's seen simultaneously around the world. I have not been able to find a text like that. It says things like, every eye will see him. Okay, but it doesn't say every eye will see him simultaneously. And that text, every eye could see him, could mean a lot of things. It could mean that all the blind get healed at that moment so they can see him. It, it, uh, it says in one passage, the second of the coming will be like um, light. Some, some uh, take that word and interpret it as lightning shining from the east into the west. You know the text I'm talking about? Okay. How does light shine from east to west? The sunrise. It says sun rises in the east and sets to the rest. So another interpretation that every eye will see him is that he sits in some type of uh, orbit with his uh, city, and as the earth rotates, (laughs) every eye will see him as the light of his glory shines east to west. So I'm not familiar with a text that says every eye will see him simultaneously. If you find that, I'd like to see it. Is last generation theology anti-gospel? 
the premise that we can live in a state of sinlessness before Jesus comes, where we continually keep sinning uh, until Jesus comes. And so this really goes back to what law lens you're looking at. I don't really, the last generation theology evidently is a doctrinal system of beliefs, and I, I really hate to speak on something like that because I'm not that familiar with their um, you know, creed or premises or whatever they say. I think it has a certain meaning, and I think it has to do with behavior, but I'm not sure. Um, but if you have a law lens of a human law lens, then, then sin is all about the deeds and the actions. And if you're going to be, uh, you know, sealed and settled before Christ comes, then you can't have any bad deeds or actually a perfect performance and perfect behavior all the time. And that, and then so you stop sinning. If you, if you have the design law lens, it really is about being like Job or being like Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of these people were settled or sealed. These are the called, called, called the perfect. Job is perfect and righteous in all his ways. There's no one on the earth like him. And what does it mean? It means we are sealed or settled into our loyalty and devotion for God, and nothing can shake us from trusting him. Uh, no tribulation, no loss of, of, of wealth, no loss of family, no, no subtle friends trying to suggest we need to sin, no wife telling us to curse God and die, no threat to our uh, fire furnace or lion's den. Nothing is going to shake us from staying loyal to God. That is the final people who are sealed, and, and we will be in that state. And there will only be two people, two groups of people, when Christ returns. Right now, there's three. And the three groups of people are the people, one, one group, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Job, they are already sealed and settled into their loyalty to God that while they may question, like Job questioned, not understand what's happening, they will not be shaken. They trust God still. They are loyal and faithful. That's the saved, the sealed. Okay, And he writes his name on our hearts, minds, and so forth. Then there is those who are sealed and settled into rebellion against God, and no truth and no intervention of any kind will have any uh, any saving impact upon them. Of course, Satan, the people at Sodom and Gomorrah, the people that didn't get on the ark. There's examples in history of people who have settled into rebellion, and no amount of truth and love will have any impact to lead them to repentance. And then there's a group right now on earth that are still in the middle. They haven't sealed in loyalty to God, and they haven't uh, hardened themselves into rebellion against God. They are. They can go either way still. When Christ comes, that middle group isn't there. Everybody's either this way or this way. They're either loyal completely and can't be shaken, or they're in rebellion completely and can't be won. And that group goes away. And so that's what I, if you, if you teach last generation theology the way I just did, yes, the middle group goes away, and everybody's either loyal or they're hardened beyond, beyond um, repentance. Has any evidence emerged that vaccine-free individuals can catch COVID more than once? Uh, there have been case reports of, of that happening, but it's less likely. And in fact, uh, the, the data that's coming out, I'm just going to tell you, we have been right on this all along because we've been following the methods of God. Uh, Lancet article just came out uh, in the Lancet that uh, the people who have been vaccinated, the more times you get this vax, the weaker your immunity gets. And the more vulnerable you are for, for infection and reinfection. Uh, we have a president who was vaxxed twice and boosted twice, so that's four. He just got infected. Okay? These things, uh, uh, you remember this, uh, this Dr. Burks? Remember her? She just admitted that they knew from the beginning, of course, I've, we've, I've told you this from the beginning, that they were never going to provide immunity. They don't. They're not vaccines. That's part of the, one of the lies they told. Calling it a vaccine was a lie. It, it, at best, and we can prove we can prove this isn't true as well. But at best, it was an injectable therapeutic that could potentially reduce severity of illness. But now, what they're demonstrating is with each one of these things you get injected into you, these messenger RNA things, 
you actually weaken your immune response and you become more vulnerable to not only the future COVID infections, but other infections and cancers uh, because your, your CD4 counts, which are cancer um, monitoring and fighting uh, immune circuitry, they're diminished. There, there's a whole host of health problems. In fact, there are several studies out there that now show that, um, that in the elderly who have had these, um, death rates, all causes of death are significantly higher in the, in the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. Uh, because of all the complications coming from this stuff. These things do not uh, reduce. And then in my talk, if you listen to the talk that I did, and it's on our website, I go through the data that shows that all causes of death have gone up because of all these things. Cancer deaths are up. Heart attacks deaths are up. Uh, stroke deaths are up. Suicides are up. Overdose deaths are up. And then because the child abuse went up and poverty went up because of all the mandates and closures, um, that causes epigenetic changes in the, in the cells of the body that cause um, the children who've gone through trauma environments or poverty environments. You're raising those homes now. 100 million uh, families were driven into poverty around the world and uh, um, hundreds of thousands of documented cases of child abuse occurred because of the mandates and both of those cause epigenetic changes that result when the children grow up with higher rates of uh, mental health problems, medical problems like diabetes, diabetes hypercholesterolemia, um, obesity, heart attacks, strokes. They die uh, usually um, 10 years earlier than they would have died. So we cannot calculate the number of lives and then that cast down, those epigenetic changes cast down three and four generations There'll be generational life loss because of what we did in this two years. The harm is incalculable that what we've done. So I will, and they're still lying about it. Really watch the lecture that I gave, a nine-step process. I outlined the multiple layers of lies. They lied from the beginning, from the very Wuhan outbreak, they lied, and they lied on almost every point on everything that they did to manipulate minds with fear to get people to take actions that they would have never taken had they told the truth from the beginning. And you shouldn't inquire why did they do it. That's a different discussion. But um, my daughter just graduated from high school. She would like to pursue a career in psychology counseling. Do you have any uh, book, blog, or advice to pursue a career in your field? Uh, so I'm a psychiatrist. So psychiatrists and psychology are different. Psychology, you get a, either a PhD or a PsyD, which is, which is a, a non-medical degree. Um, a psychiatrist goes to medical school first and then does a four-year residency. So I don't really have much commentary about psychology because I'm not really that familiar with any of the psychological schools that are out there since I didn't attend one. Uh, she's interested in psychiatry. Um, Liberty University is... <laughs> is going to be building a Christian Christ-centered psychiatry residency program. Okay. Um, I couldn't help that. Sorry, guys. Ty Gibson, lightbearers.org, uh, seems to present a few or more things that are reminiscent of Come and Reason uh, Ministries teaching, except with some penal legal sentiments. Uh, any chance that you two have associated, would you consider working together in an opportunity, if an opportunity arose? So, yeah, Ty, Ty and I know each other, and we've had a lot of wonderful conversations, and I think he's just a gracious and a wonderful human being, and I love so many things, and I've read many of his books, and I find beautiful things about God in his books, and I'd be happy to work with Ty if that uh, opportunity ever arose. If he goes to liberty. Pardon? If he goes to liberty. If he goes to liberty, he said, okay. Uh, I really like to learn from the questions. Uh, this is another question about um, the web and the web. And the webmaster's already answered, so I'm not going to read that question. 
Um, what are your thoughts on how you uh, respond to an employer that desires employees to always work on Saturdays and Sundays because Seventh Day can be kept on any day depending uh, when one starts working? Any relations with relative tr- uh, relative truth, circadian rhythm, blah 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 blah. Uh, how I respond is you you have to deal with that as a, as a, as a workplace issue. And then you assert that your religious liberty and that you, um, this is, if you don't want to work on one of those days, uh, if you want to, if you want to be off Sunday, go work for Chick-fil-A. Um, <laughs> that was a joke. Okay. But, but they are closed on Sundays, you know. Okay. Uh, if you want to be off Sabbath, you affirm to them that Sabbath is your, your day of, of rest and, uh, they have an obligation to respect your liberty. Um, within, within reason, I think there's some limits to that in certain circumstances. Uh, maybe, maybe you're, uh, putting lives at risk or something. Um, in some circumstance, they might not allow for that. But, uh, you, this is a workplace issue. Um, the theological issue, I, I tend not to argue theology with employers. They don't have to agree with your theology to respect your, your religious liberty to practice your belief system. So, says, could you please explain Exodus 12, 1 through 12? Uh, it it's, appears to me that God sent an angel to kill the firstborns. Seems brutal. Uh, not godlike. Uh, I, I believe he did. I don't believe that was Satan doing that. I think that was completely, it was probably Jesus. Uh, if you think the angel of the Lord described in the Old Testament is almost always Jesus. Um, Gabriel is identified as Gabriel, but whenever you see the angel of the Lord showing up, the angel of the Lord is usually Jesus. So that was Jesus. And what is the firstborn? What, what death was this? Is this the death that's punishment of sin? This is a sleep death. So Jesus put many people to sleep that night. Why would he do it? Because he's punishing sin or he's trying to free hearts and minds from a corrupt system that's going to destroy their eternal souls because they're worshiping a pagan system of false gods. And this, every one of the plagues of Egypt, including the 10th plague, were against the gods of Egypt. And this, and they had the belief system in Egypt that their god, I think it was Anubis, uh, con- was the god of death and controlled the gateways of life and death. And the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh's firstborn son were representatives of the god and they were specially blessed. They had the power of the god. And by putting the firstborn to death, uh, and the firstborn were also in many of the Semitic cultures, the priest and the priest of the family. And putting the firstborn to death, he was demonstrating that, in fact, these gods and things you're worth have no power. They're powerless. And, and, and why did they die? Because they were bad little boys and girls or because they were firstborn? Okay, so it had nothing to do with sin and punishment. It had simply to do with trying to free hearts and minds and continuing to keep the path for the, uh, for the Messiah. And that's the bigger landscape. You have to remember Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent's head and the serpent is going to bruise his heel. The whole Old Testament narrative is one story about after Adam's sin, promised Messiah is coming, and it's the battle, and this is the focus of the whole Testament, is the avenue through which Messiah is coming, and Satan is working to stop it, and God is keeping it open. And in that context, I don't see it as brutal. I see it as, as God doing what needed to be done to, to help save souls. Uh, lately, our Pathfinder group has been having competition on Bible memorization. I have no problem with our young people mem- memorizing Scripture. Well, that's good. Um, actually, I'm all for it. That's even better. That's great. What I see, what I see missing, however, is any instruction on understanding discernment of the text they are memorizing. Yup, oh, that's a good critical question. My question is this: How do I approach the subject without sounding like I'm discouraging memorization of scripture? Uh, you, you can by asking questions, simply say, well, well, "Hey, that's great. Validate the memorization, and then ask what does it mean." But at a certain age, they're not going to be able to tell you because uh, 
depending on the age of the memorization, they don't have the cognitive hardware to explain. Children at certain ages are concrete thinkers. They can't abstract. They can't, uh, if you ask, uh, ask, and frankly, some adults are this way. Okay? I mean, it's true. It's true. Okay? Uh, you can, you can ask somebody, um, somebody, uh, some people say that people who live in glass houses, uh, should not throw stones. What does that mean to you? A abstract thinker will go, well, if you, um, uh, can't tolerate criticism, okay, you probably shouldn't criticize others. That's an abstract thinker. A concrete thinker will go, well, if you throw a stone, you'll break the glass. Okay? And so, uh, so memorizing Bible, if they're memorizing the Bible and they haven't yet developed the prefrontal cortex for more abstract thought, they might not be able to get a deeper meaning out of it. That's okay. Uh, if they've memorized it as childhood, when they gain those skills later, that data set will be there for them to draw on. And, and I, that's one of the things that I look back on my life on. I learned many Bible texts. I had no idea what they meant. I memorized them, though. I got my little star. Okay. Pathfinders, and later though, those texts have come back and I've been able to reflect on those and so meaningful to me later in life. So, yeah, it's a great to ask if you can and lead them to understand a deeper meaning, but at the end of the day, I, I just definitely support the memorization. Alrighty, so let's go to this prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you so much for all that you have done. Thank you for the truth as it is in Jesus. And may you fulfill your purposes in our life, give us wisdom, discernment, and help us to be uh, bright lights at this time in history. As we move forward in faith, trusting you with how things turn out, we pray in your holy name. Amen.